Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Father, you are our only hope in life and in death. And we praise your name today. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to freely gather one with another in your presence to worship you today to worship you through song, to worship you through your word, and to enjoy the fellowship and the oneness of being one with you and one with each other. Holy Spirit, would you minister grace and peace to our hearts today as we take in your word once more? Would you illuminate our hearts and our minds to receive? Would you conform us more and more into the image of your Son? So, Father, as we continue in our time of worship and as our hearts turn towards your word, speak to us today, Father. Help us to be sanctified through all that we take in today. May all that is done today in this gathering edify us and bring glory and honor unto your holy name. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, and as you're getting seated and settled, if you have your Bibles with you, feel free to turn to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue in our series in the book of Colossians. If we have not met, my name is Dave Eatman. I serve here on staff as pastor of teaching and spiritual formation, and it's my honor and privilege to be able to lead us in our time together in the Word today. Uh, I appreciate your verbal feedback because this is my, today is my first time preaching in the new building. And these lights are bright, and so there's like a haze across here. And so I need to hear you to know that you're with me, and I would appreciate that. Uh, I'm also realizing I probably should have powdered my head because maybe I'm blinding you as well. But uh, I will take note of that next time. As both a pastor and a chaplain, the average person that I talk to anymore, really uh, there's a common theme uh, of anxiety, of depression, of fear. And and in many ways, as we just survey the world around us, we can understand why. Certainly for some, anxiety, depression has biological roots. But I think for many of us, the fact that we are met daily with news feeds filled with economic uncertainty, racial tension, partisan politics, identity confusion, threats of war, can settle in our hearts and draw our minds away from the one who has redeemed us. In the 10-year period from 2008 to 2018, studies show that anxiety among U.S. adults has trended significantly upward, with the biggest increase being among the 18 to 25-year-old bracket, where their rates of anxiety have doubled. And these increases, this survey captures life even before we entered COVID and all the weirdness that was that and following. In addition to epidemic anxiety, we are an extremely busy people. Some would say harmfully so. We fill our lives to the brim with no capacity or margin for surge, and the devices that are in our hands rarely give even our minds a break from processing a continual stream of information. Just if you debate that, do a little test this week. As you're engaging with people throughout your life at work or in the neighborhood or the community, 
and your, the relational pleasantries that we engage in when we see someone, when you ask someone how they're doing, take note of how often something along the lines of busy is involved in their response. Uh, or maybe how many times you put that in your own response. I know that I catch myself doing it all the time. You may or may not be aware, but our worship pastor, Grayson, just released a new album of songs that he's written. And the first time I saw the cover, I thought, man, that speaks volumes with just a few words. It's a, the picture of a, a man in a suit and a hat, but there's no body, no face, just a suit and a hat. And the title simply says, I'm fine, just busy. What's revealing about all of this is that though we as followers of Christ possess the Holy Spirit of God that lives within us, we have been redeemed. There's little difference inside or outside the church. But as followers of Jesus, we have the opportunity to live our lives in a way that dispels fear and anxiety, that dispels worry and hurry. And so today, as we continue in our journey through Colossians, we move into chapter three. And together, we're gonna to look at how redemption in Christ creates a renewed orientation of our heart and mind that both empowers ongoing transformation into the image of our creator and bears the fruit of peace. So let's pick up our study of the book of Colossians in chapter three, beginning in verse one. Paul writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so as we begin our journey through chapter three, let's look first at the orientation of the redeemed has been renewed. Last week, Dustin walked us through how Paul's exhortation to the church at Colossae called us to break free from the philosophies of this world and to break free from even man-centered religious effort and to instead focus our hearts fully and exclusively on Christ. And so as we move into chapter three, Paul begins to get practical and showing us first how his resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, provides a new foundation. Paul begins with the words, if, then. He's saying here, this is the so what of all that I've been saying up to this point throughout this letter. If, then, you have been raised with Christ. Paul begins by making reference to one of the most important factors in Jesus' life and ministry, his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the differentiator for the claims of Christianity against all other religious systems. In fact, that the fact that God lived the life of a man perfectly and sinlessly in Christ and then died as payment for our sins is radical enough. But the fact that the, he then rose from the dead, that he resurrected from the dead, not only proves that he is all that he claims to be, but also provides a certain and secure foundation from which the entirety of our faith in Christ is built upon. And it's from that foundation that Paul tells us to seek the things that are above where Christ is. Paul's challenge in the church here 
to evaluate what is it that we are seeking? What is it that we are searching for? Reminding us that if we, in fact, are in Christ, we are to keep our heads and our hearts not focused and distracted by the things around us, but focused and intent on what is above us, where Christ is. The word seek, the verb that Paul uses here, is in the present active tense. It denotes a continual activity. This is something that we are to continue to do as we go about our lives, and it denotes our day-in and day-out decision processes and thought streams. When we have a choice to make, it's deciding what governs us. When we respond to a crisis, it's deciding what guides us. When everything is unraveling in our life, it's understanding what grounds us. And Paul's saying, hey, if you wake up each day just on autopilot or looking for trouble, you are sure to find it. But if you purpose each day to seek the things that are above, where Christ is, to look to Jesus, you will always find him. Continually seeking the things that are above where Christ is means an ongoing evaluation of our decisions against their value in God's kingdom, their purpose in his mission and their contribution to the building of his church. And as life happens, we ask, how can I honor God in this decision? How does the choice before me impact his kingdom? And this applies not only to our work, but to the entirety of our lives, to our recreation and to our relationships. And why do we do this? Because his resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, shows us that he has all authority and his work is a finished work. Paul says that he is seated at the right hand of God. The fact that Jesus is seated shows that his work is perfected, it is completed. And the fact that he is at the right hand of God denotes that he has all authority. Growing up, I loved both of my parents. I loved my mom, but I was a daddy's boy. I loved my dad. Uh, He's been gone 17 years. There's not a day that goes by that I don't wish that I could talk to him or have a conversation with him. And I can remember so many times being with my dad and doing things with him, and he would show me how to do something, or I would just be doing something alongside him, and I was always looking to him for his approval. I would always look to him for a nod or a smile or a wink to know that he was watching and he was approving what I was doing. I was always seeking my father and to know if I was Uh, in his graces and walking well with him. And what Paul is telling us here is always keep our eyes tuned towards our heavenly father, tuned towards him to experience the goodness of his grace, his presence, and his mercy. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ. This is looking to our own resurrection. Paul's referencing our own regeneration. And just like we will do today at the end of our third service, As we enter into the waters of baptism, we make the proclamation through that symbol that we have been buried to our old life. We have been buried with Christ to our old life. We have been raised to new life in Christ. And if this is true of us, then there has been created within us new desires, new desires to seek heavenly things. And if we find ourselves simply never having a desire to seek the things that are above, then it calls into question if we are actually in Christ. Because we see here that because of the foundation established by Jesus' own resurrection, our resurrection provides a new focus. Verse 2, Paul says, set your mind 
on Christ. He almost repeats himself here, but with a slight change in verb. Whereas seeking the things that are above involves the orientation of our hearts and our desires. Setting our minds on the things that are above involves the orientation of our minds, our thought, our volitional will. Look at how Paul captures it in Romans chapter 8. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God has, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And here it is. How do we know if we have been raised with Christ? He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the set the mind on the flesh is death, but the set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In essence, what Paul is saying here, what he's referring to here is our worldview. What is the lens we use to evaluate all of the inputs that we receive throughout our day? What is the filter that we use to filter every thought and every decision, every action, every piece of information? And it's how we answer these questions and how we approach and evaluate ourselves and the world around us that's clearly seen in our worldview and shows whether or not we have been truly raised with Christ. And Paul makes emphasis here to this exhortation again by making reference to our own resurrection, our own regeneration as the basis for a new orientation of heart and mind. He says in verse three, for you have died. If you're in Christ, the old man is dead. The old worldview is dead. The old orientation of rebellion towards God is dead. And the question is not, do we still battle the sin nature within us? Do we still battle the desires of our flesh? We will battle these things until the day that Jesus perfects us and calls us home. The question is, do we even want to? Romans 6, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And if grace to us is the deal of the century, because we think it allows us to do whatever we want to do and still be good with Jesus, we have missed the gospel entirely. But if grace to us is the deal of the century, because we realize that even though we desire to honor Christ with our lives, we can never meet God's standard of perfection and holiness and righteousness. And yet Jesus met it for us and then lives to forgive us as we continually fall forward towards him, then we have a firm grip on the gospel. And the beauty of the gospel is that the reorientation of our hearts and our minds towards Jesus is accompanied by a 100% guarantee. Notice what Paul says in verse three. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. If we remember from our series in Jude, we talk about the fact that we are kept by Christ until the day that we are with him in eternity. And so we can see in verse four that the promise as a result of being kept 
as that when Christ appears, we also will appear with him in glory. (laughs) And so first, as we look at the fact that the orientation of the redeemed has been renewed, now we move to the reality that the image of the redeemed is being renewed. Paul continues in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie one to another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is all and in all. What Paul is talking about now is this process of sanctification. And so we see first the initial steps of sanctification. Verse five, Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. And we've been talking about what God has done in reorienting our hearts and minds towards him as he quickens us in salvation. But now we see that this is action on our part. God's part is to quicken our hearts and minds to your life, to forgive us of our sin, to keep us until the day that we enter into eternal rest and to give us his, his spirit to empower us to live for him. And our part is to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to stop completely, to mortify, to consider as dead. I tend to think of myself as a pretty bold and courageous person, uh, fairly manly, uh, until it comes to wasps. And you can ask my wife, usually she's saving me from wasps. She's, she's like, you go inside, I'll take care of it. Because part of it is I'm allergic, not EpiPen allergic, but if I get stung by a wasp, number one, it really hurts. And then number two, man, I swell up like crazy. If I see a wasp nest, we just had one in, underneath the overhang of the shed in our uh, back of our house, and it was probably the size of your fist, teeming with just the whole thing like it was moving. There was so many wasps on it. And that just literally drains the blood from my body. I mean, I just like see that. If I see that, my next mission is to kill it, is to absolutely mortify it, to get the wasp spray that sprays like 30 feet so I can stay far away from it and kill it. And I'll just sit there and watch the wasps as they hit the ground and wrinkle up and die. (laughs) I don't like wasps. But just like that silly example, when we recognize that we have the deeds of the flesh bearing down on us, sin in our lives, we can't just let it sit there or go and poke at it or maybe skirt around it, or try to work around it, and hopefully we don't get bit by it. We're to mortify it. We're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5, Paul writes, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He says here to put to death what is earthly in you. These are the things that, that pertain to the prevailing worldview, the prevailing mindset, the prevailing manner and form of the world 
around us. And Paul rattles off a quick list of various deeds of the flesh, behaviors that align with an earthly worldview and perspective, things that our flesh desires, things we seek for gratification in, things we go after or worship. And he says in verse six that it's on account of these and things like these that the wrath of God is coming. Hearts oriented towards the God of self, which we have from the fall, are the subject of God's wrath. For those who are in Christ, the wrath of God has been once and for all completely and thoroughly satisfied through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But for those who reject Christ, Scripture says the wrath of God remains on them. But notice how Paul describes those he's writing to here at Colossians verse 7. He says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Paul's making reference to these behaviors as past tense, things that are no doubt part of our lives outside of Christ, but should naturally begin to be some of the first things to go as we are redeemed and renewed and begin this ongoing process of sanctification. And several of these reference sexual sin. Paul's saying the fruit of a redeemed heart and mind accepts and embraces God's design for holy sexuality, which is a beautiful act of relational intimacy provided strictly for procreation and enjoyment between one man and one woman in lifelong marriage. But Paul also references evil desire and covetousness and idolatry, which speak to greed and lack of contentment and generally desiring or pursuing what God would forbid. But not only should there be a level of immediate transformation as we receive a new heart, and receive the mind of Christ, but for the rest of our lives, it will also be the ongoing steps of sanctification. Verse 8, Paul says, but now you must put them all away. And Paul's moving now. He's making a shift from maybe some of the most obvious behaviors, some behaviors, some of the things that should be among the first that are put to death for, for a follower of Christ to the more deep-seated issues of the heart. And certainly while a change of heart and mind should result in immediate transformation of our worldview, there are areas for all of us that will be an ongoing battle as we wage war against our flesh the rest of our days on earth. We see here Paul's second list. He says anger, wrath, malice. This is how we feel towards others. Slander, obscene talk, and lying. What we say to and about others. Good test for yourself on this is if someone does something I don't approve of, what is my heart reaction towards them? If someone or or something they've done comes up in a conversation, what do I say about that? What do I tolerate being said about them? Just as there are obvious areas of behavior that have no place in the life of a follower of Christ, there are also deeper areas of how we view with and interact other image bearers that matter to God. And from the day our heart is quickened unto new life in Christ, we begin this beautiful ongoing journey of life transformation, of sanctification, of becoming a new creation or the new self as Paul captures it here. That is, as we see in verse 10, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And just as Paul uses the word that we are to continually seek the things that are above, it's an ongoing process so is our renewal. We are being renewed. It's an ongoing process, a continual 
lifelong journey of sanctification. And how do we do that? In knowledge. One of the primary ways we experience growth and sanctification is allowing our minds to be renewed on the word of God. Romans 12, 2, Paul says we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And what are we being transformed into? Into the original image of our creator. The, the image that we originally bore is God created mankind before the fall. It's why we even use words like redemption. Because we were originally created to perfectly represent a holy God. And so we see that in Genesis 1.27. It, uh, it's written that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But Adam and Eve's sin distorted that image, created a brokenness of disposition and desire and worldview that we are born into that continuously points us away from the image that we are supposed to represent unto an image of our own making, of our own desire. But when the Spirit of God quickens our hearts and pulls back the curtain and allows us to see the hopelessness of our sin-sick condition outside of Christ and the wrath of God that awaits, he gives us the indescribable gift of redemption, redeeming us, redeeming us from the penalty of sin that awaits all who reject Christ, redeeming us from the power of sin as we now have the precious gift of his abiding and indwelling presence to live within us and guide us into righteousness and help us to gradually overcome sin more and more in our lives and ultimately one day redeeming us even from the very presence of sin when he calls us home to be with Jesus physically and bodily, fully renewed and fully restored under our original image for all eternity. I'm a fan of old hymns because of the richness and the depth that we find in them. And one of my favorites was written by Helen Lemel in 1922. I believe the words of the chorus will be on the screen. She writes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. A good question to evaluate for ourselves, church, is to ask ourselves, do I have a growing fascination with the things of this world? Or do I have a growing fascination with his word? The answer to that question will tell us much about where our heart is before Christ. And notice here that redemption and renewal is not just set aside for a certain class of people. There are no distinctions among who God calls to himself. It's not just the Jew, the refined, the high social class, the free, that salvation is offered to. It's also the Greek, the Scythian, the barbarian, the uncircumcised, and the slave. The beautiful picture of the gospel is that it's open to all. The distinctions and the categories in which we quantify and qualify and judge ourselves melt away into a beautiful unity and oneness in Christ, marked by a new nature, a new identity, a new life that is refreshing and attractive and full of joy. And so we see that the orientation of the redeemed has been renewed. The image of the redeemed is being renewed. And all of this leads to the peace that rules within the heart of the renewed. Verse 12. Put, we talked about the putting off. Now Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so finally, we see first the basis of a life ruled by peace. We have talked about being renewed into the image of our creator. And what is the image that we are being renewed to? Look at how Paul describes it here in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones. We have been marked out by God as a people for his own possession. Holy, we are set apart unto the work that he has called for us to do in building his kingdom and making him known and being conduits of his love and grace and mercy. And we are called, entitled, and identified as beloved. This word beloved in the Greek is a perfect divine passive participle. So if I can geek out with you for a minute over that. The fact that it's a participle means it's a verbal adjective, a descriptor of our state of being. The fact that it's in the perfect tense, this is the tense the writer would use to describe a completed verbal action that occurs in the past, but produces a state of being in the present. And it's the divine passive voice that signifies that the subject that's being acted upon was acted upon by God as a stated or implied agent. What does all that mean? If you're in Christ, this is who you are. You have been set apart by God because of his action towards you in eternity past and through the work of Christ. And you have become the ongoing and eternal recipient of his love and grace and mercy. You are beloved. And just like we are called to action, beloved, to put things off because of what God has done in us and for us, we are called to action to put things on. Just as the things that we put off dishonor Christ when, we are, when they are in our lives as his followers, putting these things on display the image that we are being renewed into. When we put on compassionate hearts, when we put on kindness, when we put on humility, when we put on meekness, could also be said gentleness, be, being under control as we engage with others, when we put on patience, when we bear with one another, which simply could say when we gladly put up with one another. When we forgive complaints, the sense here is there really is something to complain about. And yet we choose forgiveness. And above all, when we love that agape, self-sacrificing love towards others. The entirety of this list speaks almost exclusively to how we relate to one another within the body. And Paul makes the argument here that as Jesus engages us in these ways, not begrudgingly, but out of a desire to do so, the fruit of a redeemed life will display these qualities as we interact with others. Which leads us to the result of a life ruled by peace. 
as we embrace our identity as being creatures redeemed by and being renewed by our creator, being transformed into his image, we can expect to bear the fruitfulness of new life in Christ. We can expect to bear the fruit of unity. As we engage and put these things on, it binds us together as a body. We can expect to bear the fruit of harmony. Harmony is that sense of completeness, the the things being simply the way they're supposed to be. We can expect to bear the fruit of gratitude, having thankful hearts for God and all that he has done for us and how he works through us, the fruit of a heart ruled by peace. But notice here, we have a choice to make. And as we put off the things that belong to the old self, as we choose to put on the things that belong to life in Christ, as we choose to walk in newness of life, we see here that all of these things are readily available to us. And yet, Paul writes, let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. There's a sense in which we read that Christ desires for peace to rule in our hearts, and yet we must let it. Hearts that are ruled by and controlled not by our circumstance, not by emotion, but by the settled reality that Christ forgave us and died for us and has sealed us. And we choose to show compassion towards others instead of harshness or apathy. When we choose to be kind instead of being a jerk. When we choose humility over pride. When we choose to be gentle with one another. When we choose patience over being quick-tempered. When we choose to gladly put up with one another for Christ's sake. And when we choose to forgive one more time. We show forth the fruit of a life that is filled with and guided by the Spirit of God within us, and we choose a life that bears the fruit of peace. One of my favorite names for Jesus in Scripture is the Prince of Peace. And so it should not be surprising that a redeemed soul filled with his very Spirit would enjoy a life of peace. Philippians 4, Paul captures it this way. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, a life that's patterned the way we have just been talking about in Colossians, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts, and your minds in Christ Jesus. Even though we have been redeemed, even though our eternity is secure, our flesh is still waging war against us, we still live in the brokenness of this world, and whether it's through our own actions or things happening to us, we have every opportunity to not live lives of peace. But as we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, as we seek the things that are above, as we allow the work of the Spirit to take effect in our lives, in our minds and continually renew us by his word, we can trust that both our heart and our mind will be guarded by his peace, which is sometimes a peace that can only be explained because we are looking to Jesus. And Paul says, not only must we let peace rule in our hearts, we should let, we must let the word of Christ dwell in our minds. Part of having a life of peace, of dwelling in a life of peace, is allowing Christ's words and message and teaching to generously and thoroughly reside within us, to take up residence in our hearts and our minds and our lives, and then to be conduits of his word as we store up his word in our heart, to share it with others, 
for, as we see here in the text, for mutual edification and encouragement and exhortation of the body through exhorting one another through his word, through discipling one another, through counseling one another through his word. Proverbs 25 writes, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear, like the cold of snow and the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. And we are to be conduits of that refreshment as we allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts and the word of Christ to dwell in our minds. And the picture that Paul gives here as we wrap up our text is a life bearing the fruit of peace that overflows with gratitude, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts. This is that picture of waking up and even though things might be falling down around us, having a settledness and a peace in our hearts and being able to pour out our praises to God. And in verse 17, seeking to pattern everything we say and everything we do after the image of our creator, where Paul writes, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the way he would do it as his ambassador. Part of our banner verse, Psalm 45, 17, says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. And one of the main ways we do that is by living in a way that shows forth the beauty of his name to others through our lives and being bearers of his peace. So what do we do with our text for today? First and foremost, foundationally, it begins with surrender to Jesus. We ask, what is the orientation of our heart? Do we have a desire to seek the things that are above? And if we do, that is where we are to set our minds. But if we don't find that there, then our next step is to ask the Lord to give us that desire, to redeem our heart and our mind in Christ. And as we understand foundationally the power of his resurrection in our own lives, we enter into submission to sanctification, the ongoing process of being conformed more and more into his image until the day that he calls us home, which all collectively leads to security in peace as we embrace the security of our identity in Christ and allow the Prince of Peace to rule our hearts and our minds. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we wrap up our time in your word, we pause with just thanksgiving and gratitude for the redemption in our lives. And God, we just acknowledge and recognize that though we have been given what we need for peace, even peace that doesn't make sense, that there's so much that tries to draw us away. There's so much that tries to cause anxiety and fear to reign in our hearts. Sometimes, Father, that is through the things that we do or don't do, but many times it's through things that are completely out of our hands. But Father, you tell us in your word that if we keep our eyes on you, if we seek you continually, 
if we purpose to set our minds on you, as we allow the spirit that is within us to lead us more and more into a process of being conformed into your image, that all of these things will ultimately bring us to a place of peace. That is our desire for today, Father. That is our request. That whatever it is that's in our heart, whatever it is that's weighing us down, even in this moment, that you will give us the courage, the strength even, to lay it at your feet. To allow you to be the lifter of our head and keep our eyes focused fully and firmly on you. And so, Father, as we prepare to now move to the Lord's table, to partake in remembrance of the sacrifice that you made for our sin, Father, we want to pause now and just reflect. Maybe there's things in our life that are not allowing us to have peace. Maybe it is some sin. Maybe there are things we need to put off in order to truly reflect you as your image bearer. Maybe there are things we need to put on in order to embrace who you have called us to be in Christ. Maybe it's forgiveness or bearing with one another. Or maybe it's simply just bringing our hurt and our pain to you and asking you to minister peace to us. Whatever it is, Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would show us these things even right now. And as you show us these things, Father, we trust in the truth and the reality that you tell us if we confess our sin, you will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so give us the boldness and the confidence to know that confession and repentance are safe because of your grace and mercy. Help us to run to you in our sin and to run to you in our pain. And we thank you for the settled assurance that you have redeemed us, that you keep us, and that we will be raised with you in glory. And so move in our hearts, guide us into whatever our next step is with you, Lord Jesus, and help us to allow your peace to settle in our hearts and minds. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.